Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, I just wanted to remind everyone about the truly fantastic deal that we have with AdamandEve.com. This is the deal that you, the fans, are most consistently writing to us about saying, hey, that was a really great deal. (laughs) That was especially a case of truth in advertising. Adam and Eve has millions of satisfied customers. They've sponsored safer sex education all around the world, especially Africa. And they have thousands and thousands of products to choose from. If you look, for example, at their prostate massagers and G-spot massagers made from glass or metal, very high quality stuff and very affordable. And right now, you get 50% off just about any item, free shipping, and a free extra surprise. Just go to adamandeve.com today. And remember, the offer code to use at the checkout is RISK. Also... You know, every dollar counts when you're running a small business. You can't just throw money away, but that is what you're doing if you're leasing one of those expensive postage meters. Commitments, your maintenance and reset fees and expensive ink. We know a better way to do your mailing and shipping, and that is to use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you get all the benefits of a postage meter and more at a fraction of the cost. You just use your own computer and printer to get official U.S. postage. For any envelope package, any class of mail. No more time-consuming trips to the post office. Everything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. 
We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code, R-I-S-K, for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Corner Shop. Behind me now, Risk music intern Stephanie Eaton turned me on to this one. Call on today's episode Edge Play, because these are four stories from recent live shows in New York and Los Angeles where the storytellers found themselves kind of pushing that envelope and found themselves a little bit outside that zone of comfort. Wow. That was edge play right there. That was pushing the envelope on enunciation. Some of you have written in that I enunciate too much, and that right there was the biggest fuck you (laughs) ever. Because risk is a safe space to express whatever you want, even if you do it, Sounding like a jackassinine loon. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the fine, upstanding pillar of our society, Miss Jen Curran. I've known Jen for years, but I was quite taken aback by what she admits to in the story she will share soon. But before that, we're going to hear from the tremendously talented Mr. Joel Kim Booster. This kid is going places. Super smart. He's out of Chicago, stand-up comedian. Remember that name. He told this one at our last live show here in New York City. This is Joel Kim Booster with a story we call Waiting for the Man. So the very first piece of pornographic material that I can remember masturbating to when I was nine years old was a piece of erotic Pokemon fan fiction. <laughs> Let me back up. Uh, so if you didn't 
uh, go through middle school in the late 90s, you might not know what Pokemon is. Uh, and Pokemon basically is a Japanese import. It's a cartoon, video game, card game where that centers around the training and battling of 151 tiny Japanese monsters. Um, and fan fiction is pretty self-explanatory. It's fiction written by the fans. Um, and as a nine-year-old, I was pretty into the fan fiction community. Um, and in my travels in that community online, one day I stumbled across this piece of erotic Pokemon fan fiction that not only was sexual in nature, but it was also BDSM-themed. <laughs> Um, and this is about to get a little esoteric, but if you do know what Pokemon is, if you are familiar, uh, it involved uh, Giovanni, who was some Japanese guy's idea of a really sexy Italian boss, like bad guy, uh, using a Bulbasaur uh, and its vines to tie up Brock, who is one of the ancillary <laughs> characters, and have a very intimate, intimate experience with him. And I thought... This was so hot. Um, and it was, it was, I just remember it was the very first thing I masturbated to. And I grew up at the time, in, growing up in the Midwest, in a very evangelical Christian home. I was homeschooled. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of outlets to uh, talk about this experience. Um, so for the next three years, like, that's what I jerked off to. Mostly cartoons. <laughs> because I figured if it was a cartoon, it couldn't be wrong. Um, <laughs> My parents might beg to differ. Um, so eventually I graduated to real porn. Um, and I just, I love porn, you guys. I love it. And I love all kinds of porn. You know, vanilla porn, porn where they get into strange vehicles and they trick them into having gay sex. Um, but I still really like, um, I still really like kinky porn, like BDSM porn. And I love it, you know, this two dudes and there's this power exchange and it's so hot and I remember one when I was uh, a teenager that I just loved that to this day like turns me on I might have to lower this for a second um, was I just remember there was this close up of this guy getting fucked and he had the word bitch written up around his asshole and like other words written all over his body and I'm not into like humiliation but I do love body art so I just thought it was the best. So I'm single, um, which is fine. You know, like I have this great career and asthma and two cats. <laughs> so I've got a lot going on for me. Um, and the last boyfriend I had was about five years ago, and I have this habit of jumping into things immediately without really, uh, without knowing that it's, it's right. Um, you know, before I make that decision. And the last guy I, I, I was in a relationship with, uh, he asked me out after we split a bottle of NyQuil and watched Passion of the Christ. Um, so I was like, sure. Um, and it was a real meet cute, let me tell you. Um, but a couple months in, obviously this relationship was doomed to fail because I just asked myself, you know, is this the guy that I want to be making out in a loft bed with right now? And the answer, of course, was no. Um, so flash forward five years, I've been single this whole time. Um, but luckily, um, gay men have like a thousand ways of finding sex partners via the internet. You know, like we have Grindr and Scruff and 
Adam for Adam and Manhunt and Whisper and VGL and Radar and Grinder and OkCupid. Okay you know, you got to set a lot of traps when you're gay. Um, you got to send them out there. Um, so, you know, I'm single. I, I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. You know, um, I'm a pretty sex positive guy, which is a polite, progressive way of saying I'm a big old slut. Um, <laughs> And so I've just, you know, the last five years have just been me having sex from coast to coast, you know, all over the world. <laughs> but most of it's been pretty vanilla, you know, which I love. I love vanilla sex. You know, I love topping, I love bottoming, I love, you know, uh, sex is sex, it's great. And most of my kinky experiences have actually been sort of accidental. Like the time I was in Amsterdam uh, and got peed on and didn't know it. Um, <laughs> Because he told me that that's just the way he ejaculated, and I believed him because I'm sexually gullible like that. And um, it, it wasn't until I like, got back to the States and told my doctor uh, about that experience that he let me know that that's not medically possible. Uh, and I was like, you weren't there. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, so uh, recently though, I did dip my toe back into uh, the kink community. Uh, I thought I was, you know, living out my dreams. I was sitting at home, I live alone, and I was just watching Netflix one night and I had all the apps and sites up on my computer just waiting, because you gotta check your traps, you know. Um, <laughs> and I heard uh, the telltale like ding of, of a message that came in. And I checked my computer and I looked and it was this guy, um, I'm just call him Chris, because uh, he was white. And um, <laughs> he, uh, he had this leather mask on, uh, covering his face, and he was in like a, just his underwear, and he had the words written all over him. So like that set off some alarms, and I was like, yes. And so his message to me was, um, hey, I'm a slave, and my master is really into your profile. And so I was like, of course I'm going to have this conversation right now. Um, <laughs> So we chatted and we got all the like prerequisite information out, like his master only played safe, I only played safe, I would have to uh, host, and he, he went out of his way to tell me, and he's not some creepy rapist murderer or anything like that, which um, to someone without a death wish should be a red flag, but I had just taken a clonopin, so I was like, Sure, give him my phone number. Um, and so we start texting immediately. And, uh, and it, right off the bat, it's so sexy. You know, like, he's, he takes control, and it's great. And he, uh, he tells me at one point, he says, get into your jock strap and send me a picture. And I love that he didn't even, like, ask if I had one. He just assumed. And I'm wearing a lot of layers right now, you guys. But uh, just so you're aware, I look great in a jock strap. Uh, so I sent him that picture, and his immediate response was, can I come over now? And I was like, okay. And he was like, no, okay, sir. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, sir. Um, also, are you allergic to cats? Uh, and he said no. Uh, thank God. Because uh, let me tell you, those things can be real cock blocks sometimes. Um, so I like, was standing in my apartment in my jockstrap, and it didn't seem quite appropriate to like turn back on Parks and Recreation or whatever I was watching. So I just sat there waiting for him. And a couple minutes later, like 15 minutes later, he shows up and he like knocks on my door, and I open my door, and there he is. And 
He was a little shorter than he told me. Uh, he was a little less physically impressive than his pictures may have uh, conveyed. He had a little less hair than <laughs> I thought he would have. Um, and he was wearing an American Eagle t-shirt, um, which all of these things are, are not so bad, you know, on their own. Um, but I mean, if you are a man of a certain age, you probably shouldn't be wearing American Eagle anymore. And that's any age at which you'd like to be called a man. Um, <laughs> And so I invite him in, and immediately things don't go quite as I imagined them in my head. Um, I offer him some whiskey. I didn't have any chaser, and he was like, I can't drink whiskey by itself. I'm sorry. And I was like, okay, that's fair for some people, I guess. And um, so I'm, I'm in my jockstrap, remember? And so we sit down, and you know, I didn't expect there to be a whole lot of conversation, but he really wanted to tell me all about the three bars that he owns, and um, you know, past relationships, and also uh, spent a good amount of time showing me on his phone pictures of antique cars that he'd bought. And um, you guys, I-, I was getting cat hair all over my jockstrap, and you want to show me antique cars right now? Like, what's wrong with you? And the cherry on top of this all was that he kept saying frustrated and <laughs> irregardless, which... I don't know if any of you, all of you are native speakers, but those aren't words. Um, (laughs) So I was really struggling. uh, And I was like, let's, like, I was about to abort. And then he takes my head and pushes it into his crotch, which my first reaction was rude. Uh, But then I was like, oh, no, this is, we're starting now. This is fine. And that's how he initiated. So, you know, I start giving him head, I'm on my knees, and then he, like, takes me into the bedroom, and we start having sex, and it's fine, you know? Um, He holds me down, he's a little rough, he smacks my ass a little bit, and all I kept hearing in my head was, and irregardless, I was so frustrated with blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know, no, Joel, uh, turn, off, turn off that part of your brain. You know, this is your dream come true, to have a stranger come over and abuse you like this. Like, live in the now, live in the now, live in the now. And at one point, as I'm thinking all of this, he leans into my ear and he says, you're not very good at this. And you guys, I'm great at sex, okay? I'm great at sex. And in that moment, I got so mad. And I realized that, no, like, this isn't going poorly because, you know, I had the cats or my jockstrap wasn't right or because I was bad at sex. This was going poorly because this guy, like, this whole BDSM experience from the very start for me was about this sexy exchange of power. And I cannot give power to a guy in an American Eagle t-shirt who wants to spend all this time showing me his antique cars. So my best Carrie Bradshaw voice popped into my head and I said, and suddenly I thought to myself, is this the man that I want to write bitch around my asshole? And I said, no. But I was already like 55% of the way through with the experience, so I was like, okay, let's get this over with. And it was fine. And then I'm like ready for him to go, and he leans into my ear and he says, 
don't worry. I have to work tomorrow at 7 a.m., but when we wake up, you're going to give me the best blowjob of your life. So the next morning, I slept in until 10.30, um, and he left. And to this day, I am still waiting for that right guy to write bitch around my asshole. Thank you so much, you guys. Bitch around my asshole. So I think that if you don't know me that well, I probably seem like an upstanding young lady. I, uh, I keep in touch with my grandmother and make my bed every day. But I do have a few dirty little secrets that you would probably not guess just by looking at me. I have a stealing problem. In fact, I was once even fired for embezzling. And that's true. I, uh, I heard a gasp. Is that, is, is my boss here? <laughs> um, no, but it was, uh, it was a, a harrowing time in my life, I will say. And I've sort of always had this stealing quirk, let's call it. Um, I just don't feel ethical issues with thievery. I really don't. I would not take anything from my close friends or my family, but my mercy doesn't really extend very far beyond that. <laughs> In the fifth grade, I can remember being asked to be one of the students to sell milks to the other students during the cafeteria, uh, at the cafeteria during lunch. And I was very proud and excited to have this job. We had to sell the milks for a quarter and then bring all of the earnings to the head lunch lady at the end of the lunch period. Well... Let's just say that I can remember selling the chocolate and vanilla milks to my adoring public and then grabbing fistfuls of the quarters from the cash box, more gasping, and pocketing it. Fistful after fistful. Ten years old. Had a mom and a dad, had a great house, great life, food, it was all going well. But I couldn't stop myself. These quarters were bright and shiny. They were beautiful. And I can vividly remember holding like a nice chunk of them in my sweaty little paw. <laughs> Immediately after stealing them, I would walk to the other side of the cafeteria to lunch ladies who were selling other special treats for a quarter. And I would put the stolen milk money down on the counter and buy myself special treats. <laughs> These ladies always eyed me suspiciously. Where is this 10-year-old getting $40 worth of quarters? But they never said anything about it. I never got confronted. I never got in trouble. It was never a problem. And this taught me something at a very young age. It taught me that I did not seem like someone who would steal. And it also taught me that I was really good at it. And that ended up being a very dangerous combination. In high school... I uh, would take money out of the register at my retail job here and there. In college, I would occasionally shoplift earrings or socks, small stuff, you know. I once even took uh, some money out of the piggy bank of a kid I was babysitting for. <laughs> now, to my credit, that kid was an asshole. <laughs> and if he hadn't been such an asshole, maybe that wouldn't have happened to him. We'll never know. So by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I had landed a pretty good day job at a major university working in the business school as an office assistant. 
And I was also at a place in my personal life where I was looking to steal anything that wasn't bolted down. <laughs> it was just exciting for me. I got a rush from it. I felt smarter than everybody else. I felt invincible. And plus, as a kid who had just graduated college, I was broke, so it was awesome to be able to get stuff that I wanted. So one day, I had an idea. I had a little key to a textbook closet at the university. I let myself into the closet, gathered up a bunch of textbooks, and then I walked across campus to the campus bookstore where I returned the books for cash that I kept. (laughs) They had a policy where you could return books without a receipt, and I made $81 that afternoon. So I started doing that a lot. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. It was just working. And it was a plan that some have called ingenious. And it was ingenious, and it worked for a really long time until I started to get nervous about it. Not because I felt guilty or I felt remorse, because I didn't. I had absolutely no regret connected to it, except for myself. I started to worry that I was going to get caught. And when I got caught, I was going to get fired and have to go to jail, and then everybody I knew was going to find out my truth, which is that I was a thug. So, after one particularly harrowing night of insomnia, I decided to confess to some friends that I had been doing this, just to kind of bounce it off them, see what they said. A couple of my close guy friends came to my office for lunch the next day, and I admitted the whole scheme. Books, bookstore, returning them cash, keeping it, blah, blah. Now, they said something that really surprised me. First of all, they said, this plan is ingenious. (laughs) Second of all, don't be ridiculous. This is a major university. This is built into the system. The system anticipates this. That's what I think I said. Even though I knew deep down that we were all terribly wrong, I just wanted it to be true. You know, I wanted to keep getting stuff for nothing. I wanted to continue to have this exciting life. So that very afternoon, I went upstairs, stole a couple more books, probably some titles on the economy or something. Walked them over to the campus bookstore, got the cash, took myself out to dinner, took a cab back to my apartment, got a manicure pedicure, bought some marijuana, all for the retail price of a tome of higher education. Now, it was a lovely night. It was a beautiful evening and my worries were assuaged. But the next morning, I got a voicemail when I got to the office from the HR department. They said, come down here, we want to talk to you. So, the walk from my office to the HR department was about 12,000 miles. (laughs) And I had plenty of time to think about what was about to happen. It felt like it was the end of an era. I just knew, you know? It was almost like I was walking to my death, but not nearly as badass. And I was wearing business casual. When I got to her office, she sat me down and she straightened out her skirt and the HR lady said exactly what I've been dreading. Is there any reason that you would be taking books from your office and returning them to the bookstore for cash that you're keeping? No! I would never do that, I said. She said, okay, well, we have a huge file folder full of documents that list every single title of every single book we think you've stolen And you can see that the retail value is a total of (laughs) $1,732.32. Do any of these book titles look familiar to you? 
No, I have never seen any of those in my life. And then she said the five words I will never forget. She said, we have you on video. So I asked to be excused to the restroom, and she let me go, which I thought was surprising. And when I got to the bathroom, I thought, I have to figure out how to deal with this, because I'm in way over my head here. I still don't feel bad. I just feel bad for myself that I got caught. And this lady is not going to let me out of her office without a pair of handcuffs on unless I can somehow talk her into feeling some pity for me, right? So I looked myself dead in the eyes in the mirror, and I said out loud in this cavernous public restroom, okay, Jen, what would you do if you had murdered someone and you got caught doing that? Now, I realize that comparing stealing books to murder might seem a little off, might be a little bit of a weeds, Nancy Botwin-esque approach to life. But I didn't feel like I had another choice, to be honest. I could not drum up the remorse from anywhere about the fucking book stealing. So I had to pretend like I had done something I would actually feel bad about and go in and give this lady a piece of my mind. So I knew what I had to do. Walk back into her office and I said, listen, I am really, really sorry. I totally did this. It's obviously fucked up. I need help. It's a personal problem. Fire me. Make me pay back back the money, but please don't press charges. She wasn't that impressed with this confession. She said, obviously, I know you did it, you idiot. You're fired. Get the fuck out of here. Pack your shit. And you'll be hearing from legal tomorrow with the consequences. So I didn't get very much sleep that night either. I knew that I was fired. I was definitely broke. I had all kinds of bills to pay, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. Probably should have thought of that and saved some of the textbook money. But I didn't. And uh, so... I got a call the very next morning from the man at the legal department, and I knew he was going to tell me that I was going to have to go to court and go to jail, and my grandma was going to find out the truth. But he said to me something else. He said, I'm calling to confirm your termination, and I'm also calling to let you know that we will not be pressing charges, but we do want you to pay back the money over the course of 12 months. Awesome. (laughs) I couldn't believe this. I had gotten fired from a job that was boring and stuffy that I probably never would have quit on my own. And not only was I not going to jail for stealing all these textbooks, but I had a year to pay back less than $2,000. It was barely an inconvenience. And I think I almost regretted that because I wanted there to be some more dire consequence. So I would be scared out of doing this for the rest of my life, but that just wasn't it. A couple months later, I got accused of stealing some cash out of the register at a box office job I had. I didn't actually take that money, I don't think. (laughs) But getting accused of stealing something that I hadn't actually stolen felt like the karma that I was expecting would be coming. And that's actually what scared me into stopping the thug life for good. I... Didn't steal anything after that, never again. I paid back all the bookstore money and I moved on with my life. I mean, I can't set foot anywhere in or near that university again, but that's not a problem. So I had a really interesting thing happen a couple days ago that is pretty fascinating considering I was planning to tell this story tonight. Even though I haven't stolen anything and however long it's been, nine, ten years, I was home in the Midwest at an antique store with my mom, and I walked out of the store wearing a piece of costume jewelry that I hadn't paid for. 
Nobody saw me. I walked out. And I wasn't even really quite sure if I did it on purpose or by accident. I really don't know. But as soon as I, like, frontal lobe realized what I had done, I went back to the store and returned the ring. And the guy thanked me for my honesty, blah, blah, blah. So I guess you could say that I used to have a stealing problem. And getting over it actually taught me the greatest lesson I think I have learned in my life so far. Unless you kill somebody, nothing in life is that big of a deal. This is Vetivere behind me now. Uh, Risk Music intern Sarah Irvin turned me on to this song. If you would like to be a Risk Music intern, just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. We just heard from Jen Curran, who is a member of the fantastic sketch comedy group Harvard Sailing Team. You can find them at harvardsailingteam.com. That was from the Risk Live show in Los Angeles, which happens uh, every fourth Thursday at the Nerd Melt Theater. Beowulf Jones does a fantastic job of uh, producing and hosting the show out there. And the next one, the one coming up in August 2013, will feature Greg Proops, Michael Showalter, and Helen Hong. It's August 22nd. That same night in New York City, Risk will be at the pit with Craig Baldo and Josh Gondelman. If you don't already know, the first 16 episodes of Risk are now remastered with all the ads removed. And they're in the albums section of the iTunes store for 99 cents each. We are adding to that list regularly. But right now, there are episodes up there with Janine Garofalo, Mike Daisy, Tom Shalhoub, Christian Finnegan, Carrie Kenny Silver, Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, Ophira Eisenberg, Elna Baker, Mark Marin, Keith Powell and Andy Borowitz, among others. These are truly classic episodes. If you haven't heard them, you gotta go get them. Do a search for Risk in the album section of the iTunes store. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Julie Threlkeld. But first, Mather Zickel, who we haven't had on the show in such a long time that now the last episode he was on is in the album section of the iTunes store. 
Mather is a very fine actor. He is known for films like I Love You, Man, and Rachel Getting Married, and Wanderlust. Friend of mine and a friend of everyone in the state from back in our college days. Here he is at the Risk Live show at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles with a story we call You've Made Worms Meet of Me. I'm going to tell a story that takes place in the mid-90s. So uh, so right off the bat, you know that this is going to involve the dangers of rollerblades. <laughs> and also of men with long grunge hair. And I, you know, I, I, I sampled both of these things at the time. Um, <laughs> I remember I used to, you know, I, I lived in New York City for years and I used to go out with my friends in the middle of the night we would like rollerblade around town and you know like my hair would be going and like just skating around it would be like a, like 2am on a Monday and we would literally like grab onto the back of a garbage truck and skate down to the financial district the financial district was a great place to skate because it was completely abandoned after business hours and we would just like cruise down to like Zuccotti Park where the Occupy Wall Street movement later galvanized, and you know it was perfect. It had like ramps and stairs, and you know you could jump around and whatever. And I usually wore the same kind of clothes. I, I had a black leather motorcycle jacket and these black jeans, and I would get on my skates with my friends, and we would just cruise around. Um, <laughs> I mean the. The black leather jacket and the jeans, it, it, was, it really was a uniform of sorts. It was, I, I had been wearing some kind of leather jacket ever since high school. Ever since I did Grease in 10th grade when I played Kaneki, I had some kind of leather jacket because I thought, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to look tough. I thought it looked tough. I thought girls would like it. I thought they would find it kind of dangerous or sexy. At least, at the very least, I thought people would consider me a person not to be trifled with. <laughs> which was most important to me at that time. So this is how I, I would skate around. And, you know, it, it didn't matter particularly that, you know, that I was an acting student, student of the theater. I mean, you know, I, I, I was really of the attitude like, like, yeah, I love Stephen Sondheim. And yeah, and I don't mind mixing it up either. <laughs> A lot of guys in theater school kind of dressed like this, too, at the time. I mean, I, it was like some kind of overcompensation thing that I think we were all affected by. You know, like, we, like I was like some hard-ass biker dude or something, except I didn't ride a motorcycle. I rode rollerblades. <laughs> and about this time, uh, I also really wanted to do Shakespeare. I was a big fan of Shakespeare. So I auditioned for a production of Romeo and Juliet, down at the Mill Mountain Theater in Roanoke, Virginia. And I got cast in the role of Tybalt. For those of you who are not familiar with Romeo and Juliet, um, you should go back to high school. Uh, but in short, you know, Tybalt is uh, a cousin of Juliet. He is, uh, he's, con he's a member of the Capulet family. He's always getting into street brawls with the Montague boys, you know, Romeo's family. And uh, he's kind of like, it's a very fun part. It's, he's kind of like, uh, he's kind of like an aristocratic badass. You know, he's, uh, 
He's a bit of a dandy, but he could also kill you. You know, he's a little bit like a, like a psycho preppy jock who, you know, who can, it considers himself above the law. And he's, he's got a terrible temper, and he's a great swordsman. And I think this is one of the reasons that I got cast in the role. Because I was a trained swordsman. You think it's funny? It's true. I, had a, I actually, I have a certificate from NYU saying that I am proficient in five weapons, including quarterstaff. <laughs> of course, this wasn't, I don't really know how to duel for real. This is stage combat. This is, I did fake fighting. But it was good enough for, uh, for the Mill Mountain Theater, so they gave me the part of Tybalt, and so I grabbed my leather jacket and packed up my rollerblades, and I headed off to Roanoke, Virginia. And while I was down there during rehearsals, I became friends with uh, the actor who played Romeo. Turned out we had a couple of mutual friends from New York. We both liked drinking and playing Risk. And, uh, and it turned out that he, too, had also brought his leather jacket and his rollerblades. <laughs> so one day, a few days before we opened the show, we decided to go out for a little skate around Roanoke, Virginia. And, uh, you know, we had our leather jackets on and long hair flowing, and we're just kind of cruising around town. And I remember we came to this, to this street, which was uh, a, like a big incline, a big hill that we had to, to go up. So we're just sort of digging our way up, slowly grinding up the hill at one mile an hour in our rollerblades. And when we're about halfway up the hill, I notice in the other lane a car coming down the hill in the opposite lane. And as they pass us by, I happen to look over and I see a guy giving us the finger from the car window, which I didn't understand because, I mean, you know, here we were, two strangers to this somewhat economically depressed southern city, you know, doing a nice little local production of Romeo and Juliet and just, you know, skating around dressed in, 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 le in leather jackets. I didn't get this. And I think Romeo later told me that he heard faggot being yelled at us. Once again, I didn't get it. I mean, we were two totally straight Shakespearean actors from New York City who liked to wear protective leather clothing when we went rollerblading around places we weren't familiar with. So, you know, I, I, it made no sense to me. So, you know, so I gave him the finger back. And the car passed us by, and we kept going up the hill, and I was like, Romeo. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling that that car is going to turn around any second. And he said, why do you say that? And this is my bad Australian accent, and he's, he's Australian. <laughs> he's like, why? And I said, uh, because uh, I gave him the finger, and uh, they look like they want to kick our ass. And he was just like, oh, no, why would you do that? <laughs> Which was a great question. Why would I do that? I think it's because I really kind of wanted it. I secretly wanted it. Because I had a chip on my shoulder. Because I still wanted to prove to the world that I was someone who couldn't be fucked with. I didn't want to take shit from anyone. Particularly when I'm wearing my black leather motorcycle jacket. <laughs> and, you know, this guy's crewing by, you know, some fuck stick is giving me the finger at, you know, while I'm wearing my leather jacket. My you know, I looked like Chris Cornell from fucking Soundgarden. Who the fuck did he think he was? So I flipped him off. And, you know, but of course Romeo was just like, fuck you. You know, he was pissed. And sure enough, we turn around and we could see three guys about our age, our size, hurrying up the hill after us. Now, 
Two of them kind of branch to the side and they start going after Romeo. They start following him and the other one is coming towards me. And I, I could smell his breath like 10 feet before he got to me. He was totally drunk. And being on rollerblades is not the greatest position to, to, to get into a fist fight. You don't want to be on rollerblades. It's a great position if you want to escape. It's perfect for escaping, which is smartly exactly what Romeo did. <laughs> not so the fiery tippled. No, I turned and met my man. What wouldst thou have with me? Turn thee, Benvolio, and look upon that, and he spits on me. I hate that. I, it was so disgusting, it was so shocking to me that he would spit on me. It just, it, it seemed like against the rules somehow. You know, I, I mean, getting the finger from somebody is one thing. Getting spit on is something else. So I grabbed this guy by the shirt, and we collapsed to the ground because I'm on rollerblades. And now I'm on top of him on the ground. I'm pinning him to the sidewalk next to the street. But then his two friends come back because Romeo had, had gone on. His two friends come back, and they start kicking me. I'm on top of this guy. These guys are kicking me. I'm facing him. But somewhere, somewhere in the distance, I, I can still hear you know, a voice go, Mother! <laughs> which was Romeo standing in the middle of the street somewhere. And apparently he was trying to like stop a car. He was trying to get some kind of help from somewhere, which thank God he eventually did. He flags down a car, pulls over, three people get out and they rush across the street to where I'm like sprawled down on the sidewalk. And you know, it was like the cavalry had arrived and then proceeded to join the other people in kicking me while I was on the ground. They all knew each other. All these people knew each other. So now I had like five people around me like kicking me and I had this one guy under, you know. And, but I had this, I had this moment. I was like shelled up. They were kicking my, uh, my arms and my legs and I was on top of this guy and pinning this guy and I was just like, I, I just knew that I shouldn't hit this guy. I, I never hit him. I never punched him. And I knew this was smart because I, I knew if I did, then it would suddenly become a lot more real. I would have upped the stakes, and then they would have broken my ribs. They would have kicked my ribs and or kicked me in the head, which they didn't. And right now, I could feel that there was something kind of fake. There was something just kind of not really invested about the whole thing, and I was all right. And then suddenly, it all just vanished. It, it dispersed. They, they suddenly, all these people who were around me just suddenly went away. And I still don't really know why. I don't. I mean, maybe they got bored. I don't know. You know, maybe a, a police cruiser drove by. Uh, maybe a Honda Odyssey full of Capulets showed up. You know, I don't know. It's like, you know, or maybe just like some real adult just got out of a car and was like, cut the shit! And they all like split, you know, because this was stupid. And, you know, they all kind of disperse and get back in their cars and I get back up off this guy and he gets up, and we just had this moment of looking at each other, like, what are we going to do next? You know, it, it was just this strange, awkward moment. And, and, you know, I actually had the thought that, you know, we, that we should shake hands. You know, I, it, that, no, this actually occurred to me, like this thought, because, you know, it was over. And, you know, we, nobody was really hurt. And we, neither of us had backed down. Our honor was secure. 
you know, of course, I, you know, I wasn't really happy about getting spit on by this guy, but, you know, that, that was all in the past. And he punches me straight in the eye, like square in the eye. He opens up a cut, and I'm bleeding down my face. Because, you know, because this guy wasn't interested in my, you know, my genteel notions of, of sportsmanship. I mean, no, this, this is a guy driving around drunk on a Wednesday at 3, and he hated my, my, my rollerblades, and he hated my leather jacket, and he hated my fucking face, so he punched it. We, were just, we just had different notions of what, of what this fighting was. And I think my one point, you know, the, the one thing I was very proud of was that I didn't go down from this punch. This seemed like a great victory to me because he punched me and I started bleeding and then he just kind of stared at me and I was just kind of staring at him with blood running down my, my face, you know, like standing on an incline in rollerblades, you know, like <laughs> kind of. And then he just took off and I was like, I guess that was it, you know. Uh, and that was really the only damage from the fight. It was this cut I had above my eye. And, and conveniently, this whole, this whole fight happened right across the street from the hospital. So uh, it was really just a short skate right over to, to the emergency room. Uh, you know, and they stitched me up. And uh, I had a shiner. And I had, you know, bragging rights for a couple of days. Uh, you know, what happened? Uh, I got in a fight. You know, like, I, <laughs> you know, I was like... Trying to impress like like this woman I liked who worked at the local coffee shop, and you know, it's like, yeah, I'll take the extra bowl today. <laughs> and you know, because the the official story was that we you know that we had just had been jumped by some some local hoods, and um, you know, so I was getting a lot of attention and sympathy, and it's kind of cool. And the theater wanted to press charges; they wanted to find these guys and press charges which uh, I didn't want to do because I didn't want them to know that I had exacerbated the situation, that I kind of asked for this fight. And Romeo, you know, he kind of, he backed me up. He never said any differently. But, you know, within a few days, like this kind of, this tension sort of formed between us because... Because I resented that he didn't fight, he, you know, that he didn't join me in the fight. I was mad. And he resented that I started the fight or picked it up and that I got him involved. And I suddenly started feeling guilty about, you know, about the shiner and the attention I was getting. And I started to think that, like, maybe I wasn't the hero in this story, you know. Maybe I'm kind of the asshole. Maybe I really am tibbled. And I never, I didn't get into another fight for, you know, I, I figured I would have learned something about fighting. And I, I really didn't. The next fight I got into was, was 10 years later. And it was remarkable because it happened in exactly the same way, just about. I mean, there was spitting. There was, like, shirt grabbing. I grabbed someone by the shirt, and they were struggling, and I came down and, like, you know, fell on top of the guy. And then this guy's nine friends surrounded me, and they knocked me unconscious with a brick to the head. So that's... So it <laughs> shows what I fucking learned about fighting <laughs> like, between my 20s and my 30s. I, I don't know what that, you know, now I'm in my 40s. I, kept, you know, I don't know what this, this next fight's going to be like. <laughs> um, but at least the second fight, I wasn't wearing rollerblades. Right, thank you very much.
This is roller skating, America's favorite fun sport, a wholesome year-round recreation. Teenagers rated tops for exciting fun and for wholesome recreation. Draw, if you be men! I was born in 1965, right smack in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, my father was a combat reporter for CBS News. Although I was born in Manhattan, I spent the majority of the first few years of my life living in Southeast Asia, first in Singapore and then in Saigon. During that time, I really didn't see my father that often because he was usually uh, on or near the front. Uh, but in 1970, Right after my fifth birthday, my family and I moved back to the States, and the war was still going on, but Nixon was drawing down troops, and as a news story, there was a definite lull in the war, and my uh, dad had gotten an offer to work for the local CBS affiliate in San Francisco, and he took the job. And the town that my parents chose to settle uh, with my sister and I in is a town called Mill Valley, which is in Marin County in California. Uh, it's northeast of San Francisco, right over the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, the Bay Area offered my parents everything that the Midwest, where they both grew up, couldn't offer. Things like an ocean, and modern houses, and temperate weather, and good food, and great wine. And this was a place that called to both of them. My father uh, worked in the news station, and he worked very long hours, but uh, we saw him every evening. And in some ways, California represented a huge step forward for our family because it was really gonna be the first time after a lot of years of geographical upheaval and long separations that we were all gonna be together in a nice place. So like I said, Mill Valley was a very nice place, and it was in fact so nice that we couldn't actually afford to move there on my father's uh, local newsman's salary. Our house cost $45,000, which doesn't sound like much today, but in 1970 that was hideously expensive. And the only reason we could buy our house was because my father had spent years illegally trading US dollars for Vietnamese piastres on the massive black market and currency during the Vietnam War. And everyone had done this. And uh, everyone. <laughs> and in that time, he had uh, socked away a small fortune. And it was enough to pay for a very nice five-bedroom house in one of the most affluent towns in one of the most affluent counties in America. The centerpiece of the town was a huge mountain, Mount Tamalpais. We lived halfway up the mountain. And in some ways, Mill Valley was kind of a magical place. Uh, the houses were all randomly stuck into the side of the mountainside, uh, like jewels, under a canopy of um, old growth redwood trees that reached hundreds of feet into the air in some cases. And all of these vertical neighborhoods were connected by an intricate latticework of hiking trails and hundreds and hundreds of old wooden steps. And socially, Mill Valley was this really weird combination of 
small town familiarity mixed with obscene amounts of wealth, lots of new age navel gazing, and famous people. The town attracted rock royalty. Jerry Garcia lived there, Janis Joplin had lived there for a while, John and Yoko summered there. Uh, one day we found a dog wandering around in our yard and my mother called the number on the tag and 15 minutes later, Carlos Santana was standing at our front door <laughs> asking if he could please have his dog back. Uh, even our next door neighbors, Peter and Jackie, were rock stars. Peter Kokkonen was a guitarist for the Jefferson Airplane, and his wife Jackie was the band's office manager. And I really liked Jackie, not because of her minor celebrity, but because she was the first adult I'd ever met who didn't talk down to me. I wasn't even seven years old, but I was a lot like I am now. Uh, <laughs> you know, I. I was interested in things, I could hold a conversation, and Jackie respected and appreciated this. And at 27, she was the coolest grown-up I knew. She had this potent combination of charisma, intelligence, and warmth. And she had uh, wild, long blonde hair, and she wore these huge tinted glasses and flowery dresses, and she always smelled great. And she was from England, so she had an exotic accent. So what I'm really trying to get around to is if you had the choice, who would you rather hang around with after school? A bunch of seven-year-olds or a woman who played poker with Keith Moon? <laughs> it's no fucking contest. <laughs> and I like to think that Jackie found me as charming as I found her because otherwise I have no explanation for why she let me spend so much time hanging around at her and Peter's house. It was a great place for any kid, but for me especially, it was a place where I could escape the growing tension between my parents and my own home. Uh, Peter and Jackie had a house full of musical instruments. They had a complete drum set, which is a lot of fun when you're seven, and they had a piano, and the house was completely filled with acoustic and electric guitars, which they were these pieces of art that Peter could make sing. And the best part of their house was their reptile collection. They had this menagerie of exotic lizards and a big snake. In late March 1972, about a week before I turned seven, the North Vietnamese launched the Easter Offensive, which was a massive military attack on southern Vietnam that no one expected. And overnight, Vietnam was suddenly the world's biggest news story again. And CBS needed experienced reporters on the ground. My father didn't wait to get asked. He volunteered without telling my mother beforehand. And she was against it, obviously. Not just because it was incredibly dangerous, which it was, but I think also because in the two years that we'd lived in Mill Valley, uh, we had finally begun to build the life that she wanted for herself and for us. And as for me, I had kind of just started to get to know my dad uh, by doing everyday things with him. We'd get up on Saturday mornings and watch Warner Brothers cartoons. I'd help him wash his Volkswagen Beetle in the driveway, and sometimes we'd drive over the mountain and go to the beach. And with the, with the exception of these two years in Mill Valley, my experience of my father had been largely limited to 
seeing him on television or hearing him on the radio, and his experience of me had been largely limited to cassette tapes that my sister and I would record of ourselves to send to him wherever he was. And it's only now that I realize how totally bizarre this was. So one afternoon around this time, I was over at Peter and Jackie's house. And Jackie mentioned that she needed to go into the city to buy food for the reptiles. And did I want to go? And it was the best little trip. Jackie and I uh, drove in together, just the two of us, into San Francisco. I got to sit in the front seat. I never got to sit in the front seat. And we drove into Chinatown where the pet supply store was. And as we were walking toward the entrance, Jackie hesitated and she looked at me and she said, now listen, today I'm buying a live mouse. And I said, why are you buying a mouse? For a pet? No, because it's what the snake eats. Can't the snake eat a dead mouse? No, it can't. It won't eat the mouse unless it's alive. And she waited for my reaction, and I guess I must have looked okay with this because she opened the door and we walked in and we bought bugs for the lizards and one live mouse for the snake, which the man put all by itself in a little paper bag. And on the drive back to Mill Valley, I sat in the front seat holding the bag on my lap and I could feel the mouse running around in the bag and I knew that we were driving it to its death. And I had complex feelings about this. And Jackie gave me a gift that day. In a way, it was like she was saying to me, look, life is full of hard truths. Love is complicated and sometimes it hurts. If you want to love a snake, you've got to love a mouse a little bit less. And a few days later, my dad went back to Vietnam. He couldn't stop himself. And he was only gone for two months, but he was gone for the wrong two months. The wrong missed birthday, the wrong missed anniversary. And he came home that summer, but the damage was done. And a year and a half later, my parents separated. My father moved out of the house, over the bridge, into a little apartment in San Francisco. And my mother and my sister and I moved down off the mountain. And I didn't see Jackie again after that. Once it calls you home in the company of strangers 
Well, my apologies to Risk fan Craig Borden, who tweeted that nothing makes him sadder than when I say that's all for this week, but that's all for this week, folks. Risk has a bunch of big live shows coming up. We are coming to Austin, Texas. We are coming to Chicago, Illinois. We are coming to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's that's the state that <laughs> Philadelphia is in. We're in Austin on August 29th. We are in Chicago on September 25th. We've yet to nail down the Philly, the exact Philly date. We're still taking pitches for the Chicago show. So if you are in Chicago and you'd like to pitch us a story, go ahead and do that. Write to me at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. And if you're in New York City, there is a new workshop that I'd like to create for the Story Studio this workshop would only last a few hours and we'd call it something like storytelling for dating it would be the anti usual dating workshop it wouldn't be about putting up a front and seducing and being manipulative it would be practicing being your best true self plus you get to meet a bunch of people so this workshop is just an idea right now it's just an experiment it's in the beta stage, I guess you could say. If you are interested in being a part, write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Say, hey, let me know when you do that dating workshop, because I'm I'm interested in that. And again, that's kevin at risk-show.com. Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts, and we are listener supported. We very, very, very much rely on the financial support of our fans. So if you love what we do, please, we'd dearly appreciate it if you help us out. If you go to MaximumFun.org donate and just earmark your contribution, whether you become a member or just do a one-time donation, earmark it for risk. That leaves one thing left to say, folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. Bitch.